You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Good morning, and thanks for joining me for Rise and Crime, your morning caffeine hit all about crime. I'm Mama Jules, and let's head to Minnesota, where a man is being accused of killing not one, but two women with whom he had some sort of romantic relationship. And I'm choosing that phrase intentionally. When I report on domestic abuse, I think we erroneously assume that the term boyfriend and girlfriend, indicates that the couple are both equally invested and abuse just happens to be a part of the relationship. And I think it is important that we not assume that is always the case. And after doing a deep dive into this story out of St. Paul, I might once or twice still refer to the victims as girlfriends and the suspect as boyfriend, but you're going to see this wasn't a Nicholas Sparks novel. And I think we need to honor these women by recognizing the tangled up, tragic, intimate relationships for what they actually were. All right. 31-year-old Manny Starin was described by her family as a quirky and quick-witted mother of three who, according to her father's Facebook post, was working to heal from substance abuse and was also trying to get to a place where she could be with her three kids. Now, she had begun a relationship with 40-year-old Joseph Jorgensen, and a family member described that relationship this way. That in the beginning, they were both mutually invested in the romantic relationship. But as time progressed, Manny had pulled away and the family member said that Jorgensen became more of a stalker instead of a boyfriend. And I will say that Manny's social media profile lists her as single and she does have multiple posts from this year. So she was relatively active on the platform, at least according to the history of her timeline. Now, Manny's dad had talked with her on the phone on April 21st of this year, but that was the last time he had heard from her, and he was becoming increasingly alarmed, and he finally filed a missing persons report on May 1st, in which he told investigators that Manny was afraid of Jorgensen. Now, according to multiple sources, Manny had told her son's father that she was also afraid of Jorgensen. She recounted a story to him in which she says Jorgensen wrapped a rope around her neck during a violent altercation. And those same sources say that neighbors at her apartment complex had seen Manny with red marks and black eyes. Now, according to Fox News, one neighbor told investigators that she would call police in an attempt to help Manny but the neighbor said Manny was worried that the call would just make things worse. Well, after Manny's father reported her missing, police quickly zeroed in on Jorgensen. Investigators obtained the security camera footage from her 7th Street East apartment complex, and they noted that Manny had run from her apartment on April 21st at around 6 p.m. Now Jorgensen pursued Manny, grabbed her from behind, turned her around, and pushed her back into her apartment. And according to St. Paul Sergeant Mike Ernster, Jorgensen is the only one that came out of the apartment after this altercation, and Manny is never seen on the security footage again. 
Now, camera footage then goes on to reveal that Jorgensen had entered Manny's residence alone 28 times in the days immediately following that altercation and the last phone conversation with her father. Now, specifically, on the 28th of April, Jorgensen was seen hauling two duffel bags and a suitcase from the unit to his pickup truck. Now, investigators also through search warrants obtained Jorgensen's text messages and computer searches. The text messages between the two became alarming in the few weeks prior to Manny's disappearance. In these messages, he threatens to punish Manny for calling the cops on him by hanging her. And then in another text, he writes that he hopes she dies of a kidney infection and then calls her names that are just too graphic to repeat here. He then tells her in that text thread that she is a terrible effing mother. Now his search history revealed inquiries about the jugular, as well as trying to understand how police handle missing persons reports. Then another where he is trying to figure out how to clear his search history on his Android phone. Then he also searched the phrase lime for soil. Now this was especially alarming to investigators because lime that's in soil, has a potential to accelerate decomposition, also while masking the odor of a decaying body. And while Manny was missing, Jorgensen proceeded to just carry on with life. He didn't file a missing persons report. He also used Manny's debit card several times. Now, when police executed the search warrant for Manny's apartment, they found a disturbing scene. A large TV was cracked and laying on the floor, while other furniture was broken and overturned. The microwave glass had been cracked, and in Manny's bedroom, the bed sheets had been removed, and a portion of the foam pad covering the mattress had been cut out, and that was missing. And large amounts of blood were found in the kitchen and living room, as well as some red stains at the foot of the bed. Now, lab results later confirmed that blood belonged to Manny. And friends and family noted that Manny was sort of a, a neat freak, so much so that even the detail of missing bed sheets would have been very unusual, even if all that blood hadn't been present. Now, meanwhile, at Jorgensen's apartment complex, neighbors had begun in about mid-May to complain to management about the foul odor that was coming from Jorgensen's apartment. And then, shortly after addressing the odor demanding that Jorgensen clean his apartment, the manager and the maintenance employee watched as Jorgensen carried a large black duffel bag out of his apartment. Now, eventually, on June 26th, law enforcement executed a search warrant at Jorgensen's residence. But this wasn't a friendly, knock, knock, good evening, Mr. Jorgensen, may we come in? Like that didn't, that wasn't how that happened. A SWAT team actually raided the residence, which turned into a standoff between Jorgensen and the officers. Now, in response, Jorgensen allegedly started a fire in a closet. And yeah, why the closet? Like, why start the fire there? Well, investigators later found a large pool of blood inside that closet. Now, as officers tried to arrest Jorgensen, he reportedly grabbed a SWAT member's rifle. And if you're watching on YouTube, you can see in Jorgensen's mugshot, he's been involved in a, a scuffle. <laughs> There's a lot of marks on his face. And that, I'll also put that picture up in the Instagram posting as well, if you want to see that. Now, after the arrest, investigators found two padlock keys in Jorgensen's apartment. And those keys were eventually linked to a storage unit where Manny was found 
dismembered. And I'm going to spare you the details about how various parts of her body were found, but it is important to note that the duffel bag that the apartment manager saw, well, that was found in the storage unit with human remains inside. And another note about the storage unit, Jorgensen's phone pinged at the storage unit on May 18th. And that date matches the timeline of Jorgensen's apartment manager's story about seeing Jorgensen leave with the duffel bag. Okay, usually at this point in a story, I tell you what the suspected murderer is being charged with and when his or her pending court dates will be. But this story isn't over because Jorgensen was linked immediately to another woman who has been missing for two years. And investigators have now found her body as well. For the second Friday in a row, St. Paul police searched a storage unit and found human remains. This time, it was the remains of 33-year-old Fanta Zayavong. Okay, I hope I pronounced her last name wrong because she deserves to have it pronounced correctly. And I'm really sorry if I didn't get it exactly right. But she's a beautiful woman. Now, according to a citizen who called the Minnesota BCA human trafficking tip line, Fanta was last seen with Jorgensen before the person calling in the tip lost contact with Fanta. And the tipster also said Fanta was in an abusive relationship with Jorgensen. Now we're back to that weird romantic relationship that, again, is not this incredible love story. There's some sort of relationship going on between Fanta and Jorgensen. Now, this last known contact was in July of 2021, but the tipster called the hotline in late May of this year. So that's two years later. Then, since Jorgensen's investigation and arrest, police linked the second storage unit to Jorgensen, where they found the remains of Fanta. Now, police have since searched a home previously owned by Jorgensen, and which could possibly be the last place that Fanta was known to have frequented. Now, Jorgensen has yet to be charged in Fanta's death, but police are asking for anyone with information to contact the tip line. And investigators are hinting that these two women might not be the only missing, endangered, or possibly murdered women that Jorgensen has had associations with. They issued an appeal for anyone concerned about a missing or a potentially missing woman to reach out to the BCA hotline. Now, this story is obviously not over. As more details about Fanta emerge, I will keep you updated. And Jorgensen, well, he's currently being held on a $5 million bail with charges of second-degree murder. He's due back in court on August 21st, but that date could easily change if additional charges are added. All right, let's now give the latest update to the Rudy Farias story that I brought you in Thursday's episode. Okay, let me give you some background. I want you to understand how I research and bring you these updates. I don't just find one news article and rewrite that article and then present it to you guys. I visit multiple sites, especially the sites that are unique publications that are local to where the crime occurs. I feel like that's some of the best investigative journalism that happens. And I do deep dives on Reddit just to get hints and leads into what is happening in these crime stories. I also search out social media for the victims and suspects profiles and their families profiles because I feel like that also gives a good insight to both the victim and the suspect. Well, when I was preparing Thursday's episode on Rudy, I was so conflicted. 
all local and national media were treating this story as if it was a miracle that this boy, who was now a man, had been found eight years after he went missing. But I was getting a much different story on Reddit and on Facebook. And now it appears those edgy feelings I was having, and obviously multiple residents of the Houston area were having, well, they had merit. And here's the quick reminder. Rudy was reported missing by his mother in 2015. Now, she claimed Rudy had taken the family's two dogs on a walk and that the dogs had found their way back to the family home and they were still wearing their leashes, but that there was no sign of Rudy. Now, his mother, Janie, contended for the next eight years that Rudy was missing, despite people having reported seeing Rudy occasionally. Now, over the years, when questioned about the reports of Rudy being spotted, his mother, Janie Santana, would always assure investigators that people were mistaking Rudy for Janie's nephew. Well, two weeks ago, Rudy was found either sleeping or unresponsive, and it depends which outlet is doing the reporting, but he was found either sleeping or unresponsive on a bench in front of a local church. And Janie had claimed it was a miraculous discovery. She even shared pictures of Rudy's feet and the hospital bed he was supposedly in with local news anchors saying he had scratches and bruises and that he was currently nonverbal. Well, that story quickly fell apart as police began questioning Janie. Now, Rudy's aunt, Pauline Sanchez, well, she's telling media that Rudy is living with a family friend and that he is having no desire to have contact with his mother. Pauline told media that they were shielding Rudy from the frenzy and that he will only speak when he is comfortable and can cope by himself. Now, according to the Houston Chronicle, there are conflicting reports about how Rudy had been treated over the last eight years. An activist who has helped Pauline with Rudy's transition is claiming that Rudy was abused by his mother. But Houston police say that after speaking with Rudy, they do not agree with this claim. They're also not filing any criminal charges against Rudy's mother, Janie, at this time, calling it a family matter. But they are saying the investigation is ongoing. Now, one private investigator who works cases in Texas and Mexico and had worked on Rudy's case told Newsweek that he constantly had doubts about the mother's story. Now, this investigator, Ryan Grayson, said he handled the Mexico side of the investigation since Janie had claimed her son was being held captive in Mexico. And Grayson told Newsweek that he tracked a phone number out of Mexico that Janie had claimed someone had called her from and said they were holding Rudy. Well, when Grayson visited the home of the landline phone number, the woman there told him that she didn't want to be a part of Janie's scam. So that's where it ends for now. Houston police are giving no further comments, citing the ongoing investigation. And Janie is obviously not talking to the press. And Rudy, well, hopefully he is being cared for during the healing process that will need to take place. And now to an update to a story I told you about two weeks ago. 18-year-old Parker League from Nebraska was celebrating his recent high school graduation and had driven to Tempe, Arizona to visit friends. Now, Parker had texted back and forth with his brother, Hunter, and he was expected to do some hiking and then return to Nebraska on June 12th. That very morning, when he was expected to return home, Parker was found burning in a bonfire pit in a remote area called Bullfrog Canyon in the Tonto National Forest. 
Now, according to court documents, Parker had been stabbed in the back several times, and he had also been dismembered. It took days for police in Nebraska and police in Tempe to link the missing persons report for Parker with the report of a burning body in Tempe. Now, Parker's family had done their own bit of investigating when Parker didn't return, and they had found his debit card being used at various locations, including someone paying their electric bill with that card. Well, the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office has released that after investigating, they were able to determine that Parker had visited a gas station in Chandler, Arizona. Now, upon reviewing the security cam footage, Parker could be seen with a man that was later identified as 37-year-old Anthony Runard. The two exited the store and got into Runard's black Dodge Challenger on June 11th. Now, investigators secured a warrant for that Dodge Challenger, and they found blood in the trunk of the car, which they were able to determine was Parker's. And remember, those credit card transactions that were made with Parker's card after he went missing? Well, those have been linked to Runard as well. So, okay, so let's just pause and talk about a not very savvy criminal. You paid an electric bill with a stolen card and didn't think that that would be linked back to you? And now, okay, looking into Runard's criminal history, I'm wondering how did he actually get away with these things? In his mid-20s, Runard was charged with armed robbery, theft, a bomb threat to a school, and for leaving his dog in the backyard to die. But into his 30s, he seemed to somewhat pull things together, even owning a restaurant in Tucson. However, that restaurant closed in February after a mysterious fire, and employees were claiming they had not been properly compensated for their time worked. Now, Runard's wife refused to give comment on his charges, but court documents show that cocaine was found in the search of his home and car, and Runard did tell investigators that he had used cocaine and marijuana before meeting up with Parker. Now, this is still very early on in the justice process for Parker, and the suspected killer, Anthony Runard, well, he's been charged with first-degree murder, as well as abandonment and concealment of a dead body, possession of a weapon by a prohibited person, credit card theft, and then multiple drug offenses. He is being held on a $2 million bond. I'll keep you updated on this case. Well, that's your Monday edition of Rise and Crime. And you guys, thank you so much for sending in your case suggestions. And you can always check in with me on YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. Join me again on Thursday for more morning crime news. I'm Mama Jules, and keep safe out there.